0: Hello, and thanks again for tuning in to our podcast conversations with SYLA. Our special guest today is Michael Polak. Michael is a barrister practicing in London. He's been chair of the Human Rights Lawyers Association Young Lawyers Committee and the Middle Temple Young Barristers Committee. More recently, Michael launched his new legal venture and is director of Justice Abroad. Welcome, Michael. I wanted to start off by asking you just about your journey to law. Um, have you always wanted to be a lawyer?
1: I uh, wanted to become a football player. So I, I grew up in Australia. Uh, I was a football goalkeeper and I wanted to be a football player. So that was kind of my aim. I went to a football academy and I uh, dislocated my shoulder a couple of times. So that kind of went out the door. I, uh, I, I then, I, I, was, I was living in Italy for a little while and I was teaching English to kids and uh, working in a restaurant there i uh i came uh, back to the uk where i had been working before i taught swimming for a few years and then i wanted i wanted to study something so i went to went to a, a college because i left before the end of high school so i went to college to do an a le- A level equivalent and they had uh business or law and the business course was full so i went for the law course <laughs> but my I, I spent a bit of time around some of the kind of criminal courts in australia because my father was doing criminal law there as well so uh, but I wasn't kind of wedded to the to, to the law, I'd be just as happy on a football pitch, but uh, such is life.
0: <laughs> that's where you've ended up. Um, so you did your law degree and then you went straight to the bar, which I think is something that's probably more common south of the border than it is up here. Um, but how did you find that sort of adjustment, the responsibility, um, being self-employed? Did you kind of face imposter syndrome and, and other challenges in adapting to that role?
1: In uh, my my journey, I was going to say it was a little bit unusual to start with, but then uh, even afterwards, uh, it wasn't uh, that straight cut uh, to get to the English Bar. Every pupilage has about 150, 200 people applying for it. I, I know it's I know it's difficult across uh, across all jurisdictions, but uh, especially especially difficult in London. So I did the I did after my undergraduate. I wanted to get more experience because I knew um, that I'd, I'd need more experience if I was to get a pupillage. Uh, and, and also I, I just want to, uh, you know, do some more interesting things. So I went to, um, worked for a, a human rights organization in South Africa and I spent some time there. I spent some time working in Australia on a, on a criminal trial. And then I did an internship with the, uh, uh Khmer Rouge Tribunal with the defense section of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which was a really good experience. Uh, and, uh, you know, something I'm really pleased that I did because it was fantastic living in Cambodia as well, a beautiful country. And then when I came back uh, to the United Kingdom, we were, we were having a big, well, medium sized depression at that time, so it was difficult to find work. Uh, but uh, eventually uh, I found some, some legal work and did the bar course. And uh, after the bar course, the Olympics were on. And uh, I found there's a a sports arbitration center called Sports Resolutions, and they do all kinds of sports across uh, the UK, gymnastics, uh, they do rowing. And so if someone has a sports dispute with their federation, they'll they'll go to a sports resolution, we'll run a arbitration for them. uh, And they do lots of other areas as well. So they do drugs, uh, drug testing stuff, um, qualification all that kind of thing. So I spent some time with them during the Olympics and during the Olympics had a pro bono center set, set up. So if any of the athletes or chef de missions or uh, other officials got in trouble, they'd call up this 24 hour line that we take home home with us they'd be sorted out with like a top sports lawyer or criminal lawyer or, or family lawyer, even depending on what their dispute was about. And uh, so I, I did that, which was really good and looked and did some research into qualification disputes so that's when someone's selected for a particular event uh, but then the, they argue or someone else argues that they, they were actually the better candidate so we had we had one of those sitting uh, there during my time there, which was a very interesting court of arbitration for sport which is two south african equestrian riders one based in england and one based in south africa and there was a argument about who should actually ride for south africa so the the, the week after the arbitration the court of arbitration for sports sat in our offices um the the, the rider who succeeded was there riding in the opening ceremony whilst, whilst the other one was uh, was on his way home so it was, it was really uh, really interesting and after that the head of that service he said um he, you know come and see me he was a, a senior qc he said bring your cv i want to have a look at it so he had a look at my cv and said well, you've done you know you've done work with us now you've had experience of criminal trials but you've never done an inquest or an inquiry and he he had a friend who was starting up the Litvinenko uh, inquest as it started. Uh, so Alexander Litvinenko, uh, the uh, British national who defected from Russia, uh, who was poisoned. Uh, so it started off as an inquest and then eventually it turned into an inquiry because I had to hear secret evidence which you can't do in, in inquests. So uh, that was really interesting, got involved in that. And then whilst I was doing that, I got pupillage. So I applied for a couple of years for pubelage. I applied all across, all across uh, England for pubelages and uh, I got a few interviews and managed to get a pubelage during that time when I was working there. So a long drawn out answer to a simple question, but it, it, it took some time. But I think the experiences you have uh, going for it or, or making your way there are just as important as actually getting there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people listening to this who are maybe um, trainees or people thinking about traineeships um, at this quite difficult time at the moment will take, um, I suppose, some uh, assistance from the fact that there are quite a lot of people out there who are now very successful, but who have not had the most uh, easy or traditional route. I mean, you'd said, obviously, that you had um, worked in Cambodia and you'd had all these opportunities. How did you go by identifying them um, did you were there applications did you hear about them did you write speculatively how did you go about those things
1: the um with with opportunities it's it's uh it, it does depend kind of how you look at them i i, I found that there's always there's so many out there but you have to kind of if you go out looking for them so the uh, the cambodia one i applied once and they didn't take me because they said i wasn't the right time ty- right stage of my education uh, I, I don't think i'd finished my degree Yet I, I knew someone else who had it, but they, they, they got on there. But anyway, so I didn't get it the first time. Then I just reapplied for that. In regards to the sports resolutions job during, during the Olympics, which was really, uh, well, I say job, it wasn't paid, but uh, which was really, uh, really good, good. Good for my career, perhaps. And then led into the Leifonenko inquest. Whilst I, I just sent them an email a few months before the Olympics saying, look, I really want to get involved. And I'm very interested in what you do. And then, uh, so I'd go there and work during the day and I'd be working in a bar at night time as well, obviously, to pay the rent and that kind of thing. So it wasn't easy, but it, uh, you know, it helps. And I always say, and this might sound stupid, but I I think it's uh, life or experience as a law uh, lawyer or a law student is kind of like an upside-down pyramid. If you go out there and you find the one opinion, one, sorry, one... uh, if you go out there you find the one uh, option or the one opportunity perhaps i should say that leads into two and then into more and more until you've got too many opportunities you can't do them all um, so it is really about just kind of putting yourself out there and, and looking for it so if anyone listening says well i'm really interested in international family law or, i'm really interested in uh, environmental law there, there are opportunities uh, throughout the uk there's opportunities uh, in, in europe there's opportunities internationally to, to do it and if you email 10 of them, hopefully you get at least one coming back to you.
0: That's really positive to know. Um, So as I've alluded to in the introduction, you recently set up Justice Abroad. Um, What made you do that and how did you go about it?
1: Well, Justice Abroad was a concept uh, that I set up uh, with two uh, Scottish... uh, One's a senior Scottish ex-police officer... Uh, who investigated uh, some very serious murders across the United Kingdom, another was a senior diplomat as well, and they're both called uh, David, confusingly, Uh, but uh, uh, we we met over a different case, over an international case, and the whole concept was to provide something which wasn't just strictly legal or strictly diplomatic or strictly investigatory, uh, but something which kind of covered all those bases, and it, it was an idea which came about uh, but well we we got together and we said, "Well, what can we actually offer together and it's something which is slightly different to what's what's out there already so we can do all kinds of cases it could be somebody who goes overseas and uh, gets arrested for, for 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 any criminal offense um but it could be someone unfortunately who has a family member who who dies abroad and they want to look into what happened to them uh, is another area we do a lot of work in uh, but or it could be someone who loses money in a business venture abroad and, and wants to try to recover it. So it's looking at the kind of legal avenue to, to, to helping people, the uh, political avenue, who to speak to uh, the high commission, uh, how to move forward with the case in that way. And also investigatory, as I said before, looking at, at what kind of evidence would help with their case uh, in that in that jurisdiction. And we've done cases now we are quite a new company. We launched last year, we've done cases in Morocco, uh, Greece, uh, Cyprus, uh, we've got cases in Mexico, all, all over the world. So what what we're offering seems to be very uh, popular with people because it's not something which is necessarily very available out there.
0: And what was really the impetus for starting Justice Abroad? Was there a particular uh, incident or a uh, case that you worked on that, that made you realise that there was that gap in the market?
1: Well, we, um, we, we kind of... I, I, I've done international cases for, for quite some... I say quite some time. I, I mean, four or five years or so. I worked on the case of Ahmed bin Qasem. He was a, a Bangladeshi barrister, also a barrister in England uh, from Lincoln's Inn in London. He was disappeared by the Bangladeshi uh, authorities, he was defending his father at the uh, much criticised war crimes tribunal they have, or they had in Dhaka, and before the before his father's case could go to appeal, he was disappeared, probably because he had good re- good relationships with the foreign embassies, uh, so he was uh, and enforced disappearances is a big problem in Bangladesh. So I was working on that case, uh, and I think I learned lots of skills on that case in regards to how to make applications to UN bodies. Uh, how to use the media uh, and that kind of thing, so I was involved in that, and then i've i 've also done work for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. They have a pro bono panel where they assign pro bono lawyers to international cases so i 've dealt with a few cases with them already. I had a a client in Belarus, so I flew out to belarus and and watched some of the trial there and tried to help him uh, and 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 helping him in that case it was not just legal assistance when 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 that helped. Uh, the local lawyer, the Belarusian lawyer, but also making sure that he, the food parcels were arriving with him, that he got new glasses when he needed new glasses. So very basic uh, kind of assistance, general assistance. So I had I had some experience in international assistance uh, as the area of law, and I knew that it was pretty piecemeal what, what people are offered when something goes wrong overseas. It's something lots of people complain about, because they think uh, when something happens that they'll be looked after, and there's of course no no legal aid available for overseas clients, and uh, there's different levels of assistance depending on what country you're in, uh, in regards to the uh, in regards to the high commission or embassy in that country. So I it, it became quite clear that more help people did need more help, uh, and even with just simple things like understanding what stage proceedings are. in in a different country as well. Because often people can have a tendency to think things are going wrong or or to not understand what's actually happening just because no one sat down with them and said, no, we're at this stage of the proceedings. It's normal that you haven't heard anything about the case at the next stage, which should take place in a few months time, then you'll you'll receive this information. And so we can work with local lawyers to, to, to help them with that. So if we can understand what's going on in the case and why things are happening, And we can explain it in in simple language to families uh, back in the United Kingdom.
0: Great. Um, You've mentioned a couple of the locations that you've worked in and types of cases that you've worked in. Um, Some of our listeners may have seen you on TV recently uh, in a documentary, uh, Believe Me, the Cyprus Rape case. Um, Do you think that's probably the the most famous case that you've dealt with? And uh, how did you go about dealing with something uh, kind of on that magnitude?
1: It probably is the most well-known case at the moment. The ITV uh, team uh, did a really good a really good job. Of, uh, there's a company called Clover Productions. They put it together, and they did a really good uh, job putting it together. Uh, and I encourage people to go and have a look at it. And, of course, that show, as it should be, was focused on uh, the young teenager in question. It, it showed a little bit of what we were doing. Um, but hopefully it gives some kind of flavour about difficulties we had there, but what, what, what we were trying to do with it. So I uh, visited the teenager when she was uh, first uh, taken into custody and at that stage the family and the teenager were really worried they wouldn't be able to find anyone in Cyprus to actually represent her if she decided uh, to plead not guilty which is what she indicated from the very start um, some of the local lawyers were saying well if, if she pleads that way then we might not we might not represent her which uh, is against uh, what we kind of we, we 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 usually feel that clients doesn't matter what they how they plead but they should get representation you represent them even if the odds are stacked against them but uh in any event so i uh what i did there was i managed to find two female Cypriot lawyers who did a really good job on the case and i uh, brought in an english qc as well to help and uh my role was some of it was kind of a barrister's role, but lots of it was more uh, general case management. So making sure documents were translated into English uh, so everyone could understand what they were, making sure the right legal arguments were made at the right time, uh, making sure the media knew about what was happening in the case, because the media's uh, interest kind of grew during the case. The first hearing, there was quite a bit of media interest uh, there, but it, it got... Uh, it kind of exploded and there was media there from all across the world, very interested in the case and very interested in knowing about it. So it was a... Uh, well, the case the case goes on. It was uh, hard work, but very interesting. And it kind of sets out what Justice Abroad can do in regards to helping people in trouble overseas. And of course, we didn't get the result we wanted yet. And the case is going to appeal in the Supreme Court, hopefully sometime towards the end of this year but uh, the family have said to me you know we wouldn't have been able to cope with this case without you kind of managing things so it's uh, our role covers legal areas covers areas that traditionally might be done by a solicitor areas which would be done by a barrister media areas as well and also liaising between the family and the foreign office and the local lawyers as well to make sure everyone understands what's uh, what's happening. Because one of the biggest dangers with these international cases is that everyone's doing the right thing and everyone's trying their hardest, but people just don't understand what what other people are uh, are doing. Uh, so uh, it it went as well as 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 we imagined from the start. When we we're in court there, we we got the feeling that. None of our arguments were really being listened to. and um, But we, we hope that the Supreme Court will uh, listen to our arguments. We have very good, we, we say very strong arguments about what, why the conviction should be overturned. And hopefully that will be done in Cyprus so we don't have to go up to the European Court of Human Rights, which will take years. Uh, but we prefer things to be dealt with there.
0: It sounds like one of the main benefits of an organization like yours is really to take off the extra pressure that people are feeling I mean it must be difficult enough to be under investigation and facing charges abroad or or having a loved one go missing or indeed be lost abroad but I suppose the extra pressure for on people as to what to do the language barriers the legal complications the diplomatic situation must just be um, must just make it an, an awful lot more difficult. And if, as you say, you can kind of take that burden off of them, then um, I'm sure they, they feel a, a huge relief when they know that somebody else with experience and with the knowledge is dealing with that.
1: I think so. I think it, it, it coordinates things as well. And uh, especially communicating with local lawyers, uh, even if they speak English perfectly, uh, it, there are, there are some... Uh, there's some tact needed to explain things to to, to parents who can often be, often be uh, quite upset and quite stressed if, if something's happened to one of their children so uh, it's helpful from, from from that side as well I think
0: and that's obviously been a, a big case for you and, and is ongoing and will continue to be but what would you say has been your career highlight so far
1: um, that's a uh... That's a good that's a that's a good question. I uh when when I do uh jury trials you get a little buzz each time you 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 win a case especially if it's a difficult uh a difficult case um but it doesn't usually last for very long. So you you go out an hour later and it'll be gone and I think that's why you keep doing them. And it's a uh, it's it's slightly addictive in, in that way. Uh so it's hard to say exactly. I, I did a huge fraud trial we had uh, last year, tobacco fraud, uh, where there was eight defendants and our client was alleged to be the mastermind bringing in 100 tons of raw tobacco without paying any of the duties on that. And uh, in that case, uh, I I brought in a silk for that case as well. And we went over about three or four months, three and a half months or so. And in the end, all other defendants were found uh, guilty. Um, we're having a retrial on that one so uh, that, that's an interesting one, and that's a good one to be involved in because it was a huge paper heavy case. Then there are sp- the smaller cases I've been involved in uh, recently where uh, you know not as much uh, in regards to punishment is riding on them all, all those cases where we can help even a little bit uh, is is important so um yeah a number of a number of highlights perhaps.
0: Yeah. Um, on the flip side of that, what's been your toughest experience or your biggest challenge so far?
1: The, um, the case I mentioned before in regards to Bangladesh is, has been very frustrating uh, because this is uh, the man who has been disappeared father to two young girls, uh, has his wife in Bangladesh, and he's been disappeared. And we, we know what's happened to him, but getting any kind of movement from the government has been really difficult there and it's, that's really sad uh, and that's really frustrating uh, and it shows that in some of these cases even with your hardest work and the best work you can be you can do you can't um, you know save people from from these kind of regimes so that that's been a difficult that's been a difficult one to deal with I, I think uh, and, and complicated so it's not all celebrations and, and and press releases, there are some very you know, difficult difficult times when you're dealing with these cases. I'm also, I've got a, a current case I'm dealing with, a British Sri Lankan uh, client who was sentenced to 17 years for fairly minor frauds in Myanmar. Uh, Naranjan Rasalingans, his, his name, and people can read about his story, it's in the press. And he had a trial which fell below uh, all kind of fair trial guarantees and then they found him guilty. And what they did was they sentenced him for each individual offence cumulatively. So he shouldn't have got a, a sentence of 17 years, but they just added up all the different sentences on top of each other against what's in the Myanmar constitution, they're not meant to do that. And and getting any kind of push for him to be released and getting the foreign office to act for him has been really difficult. And he's there in a terrible prison, a famous prison, Uh, in Myanmar terrible conditions and it's it's such a waste of his life and his potential he's an accountant he could be doing something much better than that so that that that's been quite frustrating as well trying to get people to take it seriously uh, and try to get some movement there
0: and and finally what advice would you give to young lawyers who might want to pursue a career similar to yours
1: I would say that the the best advice I could give is don't try to mirror or shadow someone else's career. You, you, people may listen to what I'm saying and say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do what he did. That, that, that's not the kind of area I want to do. But even if people say, well, that sounds really interesting, you will uh, make your own path and do things differently. And there are so many different areas of law that you can do really good and helpful things in. And you shouldn't think that you have to be like anybody else. Uh, for example, you, you, there are, uh, you can help an immense number of people by working in your local area or local issues with local people. You don't have to say, well, I want to do international stuff. But likewise, if there's a particular international issue you're, you're interested in, if you're interested in Papua New Guinea, for example, and you want to work on that, then you can focus your energy on that issue as well. So it's really about uh, working on what you, what you like, what you're interested in. And you shouldn't try to mirror what someone else is interested in or what someone else is, is good at. And when I was a kid, I tell this story sometimes at, at law fairs. Uh, we had these, this is way before most electronic devices. We had um, actually Tetris, uh, and that's the only game you had on it. And then some of the, game, some of the game, early game consoles came out, but I wasn't allowed to have any of them. That's not the story. We had these books, right? And they were called choose your own adventure books. I, mean, I used to love them. They were kind of novels and you'd go along and there'd be some kind of adventure. So they'd find a box in the woods and do they open the box or do they leave the box and you have to turn to a different page. And I thought they were the cleverest things ever because they took you to a different story. I was like, how does that work? And to be honest with you, there's probably only about three or four stories in there and they all kind of linked together. But uh, it, that's how I describe career in law is a choose your own adventure book, which may not give anyone a good reference if they don't know what one is, but there are so many different points you'll come to and say, well, I could do this. I could go work overseas. I could um, you know, pursue this issue. Uh, and that's what makes it exciting. There are so many opportunities to do what you want to do and it will take you on a different path, what your decision is, but uh, treat it as an adventure. And uh, I think you should, uh, have a have a fulfilling career if you if you look at things that way
0: perfect well thank you very much michael for coming on our podcast uh, and anyone who wants to learn anything more about justice abroad can visit the website justiceabroad.co.uk or follow on twitter at expertsabroad. thanks very much for your time michael thank you for having me